Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host. And today I have a rock star on the show. Cheryl Anjanette will be joining us. She is the author of a new book that we'll talk about here later. But um, first, we're going to hear her story. So make sure you share this out. Please share this out and let everybody enjoy this story. So share it out. We'll see you in a minute. We are back. Let me bring Cheryl on. Cheryl, welcome to the show. Hi, Ken. Thanks so much. I'm so grateful to have you here. We met on Clubhouse, didn't we? We sure did. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Wow. It's been a minute. It has. And I got to hear your story and I was just, wow. I You are amazing. Amazing. Oh, I completely understand why you're doing what you're doing. And I'm so grateful that you're sharing. I'm, you know what? I love doing this show. I love doing what I do. So, and I get to have amazing guests like you. And look at that house behind you. My goodness. <laughs> that is not a green screen, folks. <laughs> My it's husband beautiful. is an architect, so. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful, beautiful. So Cheryl, I started this literally in four days. It will be four years ago that I started this show. And, um, I, you know, it's, it's really, this is all about helping people have a breakthrough in life and get unstuck. Um, I believe that we all go through stuff and and we all get stuck we all experience imposter syndrome which i know we're going to talk about that today um so let's start with you know where you were born and raised let's start there yeah well i was born on the east coast i was born oh. in uh, massachusetts but i was raised in california so my father was a civil engineer traveled across the country for different projects, got to California and said, that's it. I'm not leaving. This wow. is where I've got to stay. Yeah. What part yeah. of California did, did you land in? Northern California, East okay. Bay. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So, so you, how old were you when you moved to California? I was young enough not to remember. Oh. <laughs> I want to say three-ish or something like that. I know my sister was born, so I think I had to have at least been three. Okay. Yeah, but I was probably about five or six when we landed in Northern California. We had a few stops along the way. So you don't have any, like, longing for Massachusetts? Well, I have a lot of relatives there, and I've got oh. this great family. Like, I love my cousins. I wish I'd had that opportunity to really be with them, but, you know... Yeah. I get to go back and visit. So that's right, good. Yeah. Right, right. So what was it like growing up for you? I mean, what, did you have a normal childhood? Was it, was it um, not normal? Did you get in trouble? Were you arrested <laughs> a lot as a child? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I was you like, I, I do. Oh I do. I wish I was like a bad girl or I did more. I was like the, I, so from the outside, like from the outside, we looked like we had this really, I wouldn't say ideal, like it was clear from the outside that there was some dysfunction because both of my parents were, you know, my mother, especially growing up was obese, like very, very obese. And wow. my father was just kind of a husky, heavy guy. And so it was clear, you could tell there were some eating issues, which are usually, you know, something to do with something below that surface. Um, but we, you know, we really lived a nice middle, upper middle class life. I had parents that 
really, you know, we're family oriented and loving. And I was the middle child. I mean, it, from the outside, it doesn't sound like there was a lot to break through because compared to, I think, what most people go through, we were incredibly blessed. Now, I didn't know as a child that my father was always stressed and worrying about money. <laughs> I learned that much later in life. You know, they didn't really talk about money or uh, put that on us, but it looked um, very normal. Mm. If there, if there is such a thing as normal. I don't think there is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've interviewed enough people now to know that, we all kind of come from some sort of dysfunction, but you know, so you, you said they never talked about the worry of, of money or whatever, No. but everything's energy, right? So did you not feel some sort of disconnect? As a kid? No. Well, I would say like, um, just to give you a little more background, yeah. You know, because I think in that those days, you know, I'm a gosh, are we supposed to say our age? I'm a little bit older. So, <laughs> but you're, back you're in, 36, back, almost 36 now. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so back, back in those days, I think, and at least the way my parents were raised, you just like really didn't talk about certain things. So they didn't talk about money, but the, model I had for my father was one of expansion. It was one of abundance. It was he, in his mind, even if he was stressed about it, it was always like, I can get it done. I can do it. I can bring it in. So money wasn't really an issue for yeah. me growing up. I think I had really good role models in that respect. I think it was more around love. And my father was very demonstrative, very loving. Um, very kind, but a big guy. He was also controlling. Mm. So you can have both things, right? Yeah. You can have yeah. both things. He wasn't narcissistic in any way, shape, or form. And I know that because I married one. Um, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> not not now, not, not now, now yeah. in the past, yeah. but yeah. but he was just like um this generous, bigger than life man. And my mother was you know, very subversive. She kept her voice down. She didn't speak much. She didn't speak her mind anyway. She didn't really know how to show love. And so I think that was the where the dysfunction came in. She was holding so much in, so mm. much pain, so much pain that yeah. she didn't know how to express it. She was never allowed to express it as a child. Was it so? I assume it wasn't expressed to her either from her, 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 um, parent, parental units. <laughs> we'll just say that that's exactly right. Yeah. That's, yeah. That was learned uh, behavior. Yeah. And you know what's cool about you though? Cause I, I've, I've gotten to know you. You're not like that. I can tell. Like, I, I, you're just not like that. You're, yeah. you're very loving. Um, so you broke the, you broke the chain and I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't like my husband now and I, I, I de definitely found my Prince Charming and I waited a long time for that, but we're, we're, we hold hands, we kiss, we hug, we tell each other, we love each other multiple times through the day. I mean, we're, you know, we're just a very loving family. Yeah. That's so awesome. And I met your husband on Zoom. Yes, you did. Yeah, he's a <laughs> nice guy. So, so, so growing up, you, um, you saw, um, you said your parents were um, obese. Yeah. You know, being a recovered alcoholic, I am, and, and being familiar with, all of the demons that 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 fuel the addiction fires if you would i don't see anything different as far as 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 um causality i guess of uh, between obesity and 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 alcoholism or drug addiction you, you're addicted to 
I mean, there's only one way to become obese and that's eat too much. And, okay. and I, I think that it's, it's literally you're, you're, you're trying to cover up something deep. Yeah. I mean, food addiction is complex. It's a little more complex than alcohol addiction or drug addictions, because if you want to detox, if you want to stop, and I'm not saying it's easy by any means, no. but you can go through life and simply not drink. Right. It's not, I shouldn't use the word simply, but <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's never simple, but you cannot drink. You can stop drugs and you, you know, might take some time, but you can, you can stop smoking. I help people stop smoking all the time. Usually with one, I'm a hypnotherapist also with one session with food. It's complex because we have to eat to live. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly there are, you know, people can live for a certain amount of time with food, certainly not without water, but really food should be something that is a joy. It should be a nourishment for our bodies. Yeah. And so there's, there's the emotional stuff, you know, it's like, what was buried? What are you trying to fill? What are you trying to nourish? What are you trying to, right? Yep. What are you trying to feed? Right. I, I, I remember I, I knew this woman that was, um, alcoholic but recovered and also um in overeaters anonymous or something like that and and i remember her saying you know with food you have to like it's not like you just get rid of the dragon you have to take the dragon out of its cage a few times a day and pet it and and nurture it and yes and be very gentle and careful with it and and all of that so I can't, I can't imagine. Yeah. And you have to choose which dragons and then there's the habit. Yeah. So I talk a lot about habit in my book, but you know, we create these neurological patterns and they are in our brain. The neurons do connect in these pathways. It's a path of least resistance. And if my go-to is French fries, I might just constantly go to that. And it becomes one of those things where you're saying, oh, I shouldn't do that. Now the shouldn't then creates a little bit of shame, right? Yep, yeah. So then I have one or two and then before I know it, the French fries are gone or whatever that the thing is, the French yeah. fry is gone. And pretty soon you're thinking, oh, I'm so ashamed. I might as well just eat everything. I already blew it. So it's like this downward spiral. Yeah. So it's, it's emotional, it's habitual, it's patterned there's a lot of shame and blame and guilt that gets thrown into that. And I'm sure that is true with every addiction. It absolutely is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely know that it is. So, you know, I, but so you, this environment that you grew up in, there was, um, it doesn't sound like there was a lot of love. Um, well, there was a lot of love. Oh, there was a lot of love, like oh, oh, an oh, abundance oh. of love from my father. From your and father. My, mo my mother was not unloving. So I, okay. I should preface that with, she wasn't like cold. She just was a little bit neutral. Like she did all the things that a mother should do. Um, we were always dressed. We were always brought to school. We were, food was on the table. You know, she told us we did a good job, but you didn't there were no hugs and kisses and oh what a good little girl you are and i never got to know my mom like like a girl to girl yeah. kind of thing yeah. and i never had that experience so she was a really lovely person i've lost both of my parents actually now wow um fairly young uh, but she didn't know how to show emotion because when she was a little girl she was she was adopted and she was raised in a very wealthy household in, you know, in Ohio, in Shaker Heights. And really, yes. And my grandmother was, you know, a high functioning alcoholic, you know, the country club kind of alcoholic. And my grandfather was a very renowned pediatrician who had had an injury and was able to prescribe himself some drugs and was a high functioning drug addict. And they would like do things to my mother, like um, I think my grandfather one time put dye in the cookie jar so that if she's, they said, Lenny, did you eat 
any cookies? And she'd say no, but her mouth would be all blue. <laughs> you know, oh my gosh. just shameful things and it made her feel terrible. And so I think she was just really didn't have a voice. She wasn't not allowed to, you know, children were meant to be seen, not heard. And so, you know, when I was older, I pictured her as a child. I thought this poor little, and I was able to really understand her and really create a bond with her later in life that I wasn't able to as a young girl. Wow. If that makes sense to sure. you. Well, you grow, I, I think, you know, you grow up and you start, um, especially after you have your own kids. Yeah. Um, you start you start putting pieces of the puzzle together, so to speak. Like you're yeah. like, wait a minute. Okay. Now I understand why they reacted the way they, or whatever. Like I get it, you know? So, so you, you, you grew up in, you said the East Bay area, in Northern California. Mm -hmm. um, is that, that's where you went to high school and, and, and yeah. 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 And did you end up going to college up there? I went to UC San Diego first. Oh, wow. But at the end, um, <laughs> this is not an easy story, but at the end of my freshman year, in fact, the, the night right before my last final, uh, my girl, my roommate, who now works with me, by the way, but she was staying with her boyfriend and I didn't realize that I was just tired. I'd worked. I was studying for my finals. I left the um, door to my dorm room open and in the middle of the night, I woke up and there was a man in my room. And the next thing I knew, I was laying there in bed and there was this man over me and I had a knife at my throat and it was a big one. It was like one of those hunting knives. And I was oh just, um, I want to say I was shy of my 18th birthday. I think I was still 17. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Yes, I was 18. I was 18, just shy of my 19th birthday. And um, I don't know what it was. I think we play these scenarios in our mind. Maybe we watch movies and we say, what would I do if? But in the moment, I stayed really calm. And I just kind of said, who are you? And he said, Shh, you know, shut up. Don't speak. And I said, okay, I won't speak. I said, really calm. And at a certain point, he realized his intent was rape, but at a certain point, he realized he'd left the door to my dorm room open. And the light was coming in from the outside. So he told me to get up and I was frozen, like I couldn't move. And he said, get up, get up. I want you to, um, you need to shut the door. And I I said, okay, but I couldn't move. So I was like, Cheryl, wait, get up, get up. Somehow I got my legs to move. I got up. I walked really slowly. In my mind, I was like, slow, 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 you know, hit the doorknob, fling it open. And I did exactly that. I got there. I hit the doorknob and I just flung it open and ran. And then I tripped, like, and it probably all happened in seconds. Oh I tripped and I slid and I... I had these rug burns on my, on my um, hip and I looked back and I mean, all of a sudden it was like that, boom, all of a sudden I could scream. Cause before that I was like, I couldn't have screamed if I wanted to. Oh my when God. he said scream, I thought I couldn't, I, I mean, even if I wanted to scream now, it would have been like, you know, Oh my gosh. And, um, and so after that, um, we found the guy and we prosecuted and I was on campus for the summer and he came looking for me and he broke into the wrong apartment. You know how those apartments sometimes all look the same. They're like blocks. Yeah. Well, he broke into my girlfriend's apartment. I had, I was already at work because I got, went to work early and I'd left for work and the police had come by and they said, are you okay? And I said, yes. And she called me and she said, this guy broke in. I was, I was on the couch and, you know, because my sister was staying over and he threatened, you know, to kill me if I told anyone. And so that was it. I never went back to that apartment. My mom came down, drove me up. We just packed up, wow. stayed in a hotel that night. And then I was at Berkeley. So that was my college experience. I mean, it was like, wow, 
I was at UC Berkeley, which is a phenomenal school. And I, I had the grades to be there, but I think I was just in this um, shock still. I think, you know, it was so traumatic that I, I didn't realize it, Ken. Wow. And, and I'll tell you what, I never got angry about it. And that followed me around until I was finally able to get angry. I was never able to heal. <laughs> Wait a minute. So, okay. You're saying that you couldn't heal from that until you got angry. I couldn't. So most people get stuck in anger. In fact, there is men get stuck in anger and women get stuck in uncertainty. I never saw myself as an angry person. So right after this event, this incident, I talked everyone into the fact that I was fine. The two worst words together on the planet are, I'm fine. Yeah. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah. So I was like, I'm fine. I've got this. I'm strong. I can handle it. I'm so glad it happened to me and not someone else. And it was like, I, I just never dealt with it. I pushed it down. I pushed it down. That wasn't me. That wasn't me. And I went through a period where I was always very tall, thin, kind of lanky, and I gained weight. And then I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do this. And, you know, that's where that goes into that yeah. fight or flight part of your brain. There's actually five Fs, not three, two. It's fight, freeze, flight, food, and the other F. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you said fine, it reminded me that it's an acronym for the F, yes yeah insecure neurotic and emotional mm -hmm. um or mm -hmm. feeling insecure neurotic and emotional mm -hmm. so so okay so you went through college you ended up at berkeley you i'm sure you graduated at the top of your class um i i i, I would imagine what and and you're still I were you still when you graduated college were you still carrying this? How long wow. did it take until you confronted it? So I didn't really confront it. Um, in fact, I remember my ex husband who I met in Paris. I took off to Paris, so that was the flight, right? There's so I never did the fight. After college, there's, there's freeze, flee, fight food. So I told you about the food. I did that. Yeah. Um, I did the flea and the flea was after college. I took off with one of my friends from my freshman year and we did the backpack thing around Europe. And I ended up staying in Paris for five years. Oh so that was gosh. my flea. And I met my ex-husband there and that was my um, not so good marriage, wow. but I got a beautiful son out of that. So I have an amazing son. And uh yeah, so I did the flea. So I remember telling him about this incident and he just, he responded with, oh, and I've got a story for you about someone that had something even worse happen to them. Like he never really acknowledged that it was, you know, so again, it got more pushed down. And I, um, I think not until I really started to get into hypnotherapy, then I start, started to realize that it's okay to be angry you know, anger is one of this whole emotional repertoire we have that is meant to be expressed and let go of, rather not repressed, right? Yeah. Um, and I started to just kind of realize that I wasn't really healed, that even though I was saying I forgave all these things, that I really hadn't truly forgiven them in my mind, and they weren't ready to be forgiven because I hadn't expressed. I had never said this person did this thing to me and this changed my life. This really hurt me. I never said that. I always thought, oh, this poor guy he must have had a hard life. I don't want him to go to prison. And he didn't, by the way, uh, he, he got off. But, you know, I don't want it to happen to anyone else. But, you know, oh, poor guy, poor guy, because I'm an empath. I I can feel other people's pains. I, I can understand them, but to my own detriment. I can relate to that. So, but I mean, just to be clear, he, he didn't, I mean, it didn't like nothing. 
how do I say there was no rape involved, but the intent, no. the intent was there for sure. And that was part of my, that was another part of my story mm. to explain away why I had this under control. I wasn't raped. I right. got away. Right. This wasn't right. so bad. Everybody it's else traumatic. has it worse. I can handle it. And I think what we have to acknowledge, Ken, is that for you, whoever you are that's listening to this, whatever your feelings are, whatever your emotions are, whatever your experiences are, they matter. They're valid. You can look at other people's. You can say, oh my gosh, poor that. But please don't subvert your own. Please don't say mine are less or mine aren't important because yours are. If you are hurting, if you have unexpressed emotions, there's a way to express them in a very healthy way. Yeah. So they don't come out in maladaptive behaviors that are going to just hurt you in your life and, and probably possibly other people around you. Amen. Amen. Get a punching bag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, when we say that, yeah, when we say that men get caught in anger, it's because behind that anger, there are all these other emotions that they just don't want to tap into, like fear and shame and blame and guilt and loneliness, right? Yep. Yep. Those are the those are the ones that are like, oh, I, I can't go there. But when you go there and you put the light on those, the anger goes away. Now yeah. you can really see what was behind the anger. I, I, I love it. So you, when you got out of college, you went to, to my wife, my wife was in, um, in France for not, well, I don't know how long, but she was there. Um, I think during college, but so You met your first husband in, in, in France. Is that where you got married and stayed or did you come back here and get married and, and stay in the U S yeah, we flew back and got married in California and then we flew back for another year and then came, okay. moved to Chicago and I was in Chicago for 13 years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then at a certain point, you know, that was really where I started my career. I really started to, you know, build my career, build who I was in the world, what I wanted to do, how I was showing up, went through all the imposter syndrome stuff. That's fun. So, but what was your major in college? I was, um, so I was a um, social studies field major with an emphasis on legal studies. So okay. I'd always thought I'd be a lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. So you get out of college and and you get you end up in Chicago for 13 years. What was your career path? Social studies? <laughs> no, marketing. No, no. no. Marketing. So so when I was in Paris, I didn't have a visa, so I was working under the table. Uh-huh. <laughs> They're going to come get me. Uh-oh. I know. <laughs> if you're with uh, the uh, government of No, I'm kidding. Yeah. So I was, I was working under the table. So I happened to be in a parfumery and they said, Oh, you're American. And I said, yeah, I'm living here. And, and, you know, I was doing some modeling, but once I was in a relationship and I I don't think he liked that. And I wasn't a strong, be my own independent kind of person at that time. And, you know, so I listened to him. So I started working in this perfumery. And so that was the beauty industry. And so I got to to Chicago and I kind of went into that industry first. Um, But in that industry, I kind of went right into management, leadership. You know, so for eight years, I was a director of a um, kind of a, a, a makeup and skincare salon on Oak Street in Chicago, but we were educational. So we taught people how to do makeup and skincare. And I would go into organizations and do seminars for professional women on uh, nonverbal communication. What is a perfumery? Am I saying that right? Yeah. So perfumery, perfume is the French word for perfume. Oh, And so it's a big deal, you know, because so many of the perfumes are made in France. Yeah. And so people go into those 
perfumeries and they are just full of perfumes and they buy what they want. They get it duty free and it's kind of a big yeah, That's cool. Used to be. I don't know if it still is, but a big deal. So then you find yourself in Chicago. You're working at a um, makeup company. Is that is is that? It was more educational, but they had their own makeup line, line own okay. skincare line. Mm. Yeah, and it was actually um, it was Marilyn Miglin who her husband was the one that was killed by the same guy that killed Gianni Versace. He was wow. that that real estate. Yeah, he was a, wow. a Lee Miglin. He was um, a wonderful person. And it was just uh, such a hard, hard time. Um, Lee actually had left me a message the day before he was murdered. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I didn't hadn't listened to it because we had those old machines, you know, where you yeah, <laughs> yeah. listen to the voice message. And I'd been really busy and I'd leave really early for work. And I came back after trying to help that day with all the PR, the press coming around and the police coming around. And I came home really late at night and I had so many messages and I pushed the button to listen to a few. And the first voice I heard was Lee's. Wow. Yeah. That's so crazy. Sad. So sad. Wow. So, so what happened after Chicago? You were there, you said 13 years. Um, yeah, I was in Chicago. Um, I had started a company called Performance Alliance, which I'm just reigniting now 20 years later, believe it or not, wow. more than 20 years. And um, it's because I was really interested in people, in organizations. We spend so much of our life at work. And I was really interested in organizational health, mm. that people should really you know, we should, how do we build cultures? How do we build teams? How do we use rewards and recognition to build really healthy companies that can really thrive? And, and so I'd started this company and uh, most of my clients that were coming in were for PR and marketing because I'd also done that. And I was a single mom. And so what, when somebody said, can you do this? I would say, absolutely. You know, I had the five-year-old and I had the mortgage payment and I had all this going on. And so I would say, Sure. But I'll tell you, there's a story there. Um, when I first started that company, Performance Alliance, I left kind of my not happy, but cushy job. I had the nice paycheck. You know, I had mm. a big team. I had 80 people reporting to me. And wow, where I, had, I managed a team of 80, but I had, you know, 13 managers and leaders reporting to me. And I left to start my own company and I had a good cushion and I lost 90% of my net worth. 90% in the market. There was a big market downturn. Wow. And I had studied the market enough to know just enough to know, or I said, I would say I knew enough to get myself in trouble. And so I decided, oh, my stocks are doing well. I've lost 90%. I'm going to just manage this on my own, which meant I lost even more. So I think initially wow. I lost maybe 60 or 70%. And I, I was just like, oh, this isn't good. And so I spent about, this was a big breakthrough for me. I spent three months frozen, free, like I'd always been a good sleeper. I would stare at the wall at night. I think, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? My, I've got this, you know, I, I'm trying to think how old he was. Uh, he was probably six or seven at the time, six-year-old, you know, I'm a single mom. I didn't have much support from my ex-husband. I did have some though. Mm -hmm. um, and what am I going to do? And then about three months into that, you know, and I would just sit and I'd work on my marketing, but I wasn't getting out there. I wasn't creating sales. I wasn't doing anything. And one day I just said, this is enough. I need to focus on what I have, not what I lost. And so I started to write down all the things I had. I like looked at my bank account. I looked at my you know, the financial situation. Yeah. I looked at the connections I had. I, I started to be grateful for the fact that I have a good mind. I can, I can make things happen. I started to understand the gifts I had. And I started to just focus on gratitude. I mean, it was this simple, Ken. I started every day to just marinate myself in gratitude and just in the love I had for my son and the home I had and 
and I put, I would just pivot it away from fear. I let fear kind of push me towards this place of gratitude. And all of a sudden I would say within certainly less than a month, it was just a few weeks. I was making more money than I'd ever made working for anyone else. Yeah. You know, I did a few things. It wasn't like I just focused on gratitude and boom, there I was. Right. You know, I said, oh. what do I need to do? And I got really clear about my message. I got my elevator pitch. I got myself out there. I started to get out with some charity organizations and I met people and those people would introduce me to other people. And it was like, boom, boom, boom. What do you do? Yeah. Wow. And I, yeah, I just put it together. You know, I, I think that, and you and I have had conversations about this, this topic, but you know, when we focus on all of our problems, there's this energy that's created within us and we're exuding that it becomes fear. Like we live in a constant state of fear and I've been there paralyzed. I mean, paralyzed, <laughs> unable to move, not knowing what to do, feeling worthless and weak and incapable of anything. And, and then when you have that shift that you were just talking about to gratitude, I'm a huge gratitude. I, I write gratitude lists every day. Yeah. And, and when you, when you are focused on gratitude, well, it replaces that bad energy with a better energy. And then you're out in the world and people are like, oh, I look at her and that beautiful energy she's putting off, right? And that's what attracts all of the other good stuff. I That's my brief synopsis of the whole thing. Yeah. And, you know, since you're talking about energy, I, I'd like you to consider, and you, you probably have considered this, so this is more for listeners, yeah. um, that... When you're in fear and when you are thinking and worrying and feeling that worthlessness, we've all been there, right? It's almost like the energy just closes up. It's like this dome closes up. And the minute yep. you are in gratitude, it opens up. But just above us, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, God, the universe is there. The, the universe wants to give you everything. It just needs to understand what you want and it will just pour into you. But you have to be open. You have to be a good receiver. Yeah. And we become a really good receiver when we are in gratitude. And part of that receiving is giving. So you know this and you talk about this, Ken. Yeah. It's like I almost think of one hand is receiving and the other is giving and that energy just keeps coming in and going out and it, and it grows and it expands that way. Amen, sister. <laughs> That's all I, I mean, it's so true. I preach that. Like if you, you know, and it's only because I, I look, you can't, I don't think that it's possible I, I remember before I ever got sober 20 years ago, almost, well, way more than 20 years ago, I was sitting with this psychologist that was just picking me apart mm -hmm. and, and my alcoholism and, you know, and she was extremely obese. And of course I'm sitting there thinking you're judging me. Like you really, have you looked in a mirror and you're going to judge, but, the other part of it was, in my mind, she hadn't experienced what I had experienced. She wasn't an alcoholic. She wasn't in recovery. So how can you deliver the message? Like, you, like I, I don't think you can deliver it with the same um, power where somebody can receive it on the same level. Well, I think that's part of why when someone's been through a particular experience, we're more open it's easier to make that connection. It's yes. like, it's like anything. It's just this, this, um, I understand you. Right. Yeah. But I will say, um, can I, can we talk about judgment for a minute? Please. Yes. Yeah. Judgment's a big one, right? Yeah. It's a big one with imposter syndrome. So I talk about the three headed 
judgment dragon. Oh, you By have the my way, book. <laughs> I, I, I'm just going to go ahead and and throw this up on the screen right now. Your book, The Imposter Lies Within. I have a feeling there's 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 a double meaning behind that right there. Yes. Um, yeah. And I haven't yeah. even I haven't read the book yet, so don't hate me. I just I don't. don't. Oh, I don't hate you. Oh, I'm I so don't. grateful for you. Are you kidding? Um, yeah, the imposter lies within, meaning yeah. meaning it's inside of us. You know, yeah. it's internalized. It's below the surface. There's a disconnect between um our actual accomplishments and how we feel about them. So we can know, we can know, yes, I've done all these things. Yes, I'm an attorney. Yes, I'm an engineer. Yes, I'm a teacher. Yes, I'm a great mom. But inside we feel that disconnect. So it's like, but I don't feel, I feel like I'm going to be found out. I feel like I'm just a fraud. You know, they're going to find me out. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not deserving. And part of that is the judgment. So judgment is, you know, the other part of that book is silence your inner critic. Silence your inner critic, tame your fear, unleash your badassery. But the silence your inner critic. And so the judge is more than the inner critic. That's just right. one part of it. But this thing about judgment, when you were talking about a woman who had her own addictions, but was judging you about yours, you know, that way she was trying to quote unquote help you, which was not helpful, is to judge you and pick you apart. That's that's not a good practice, right. um, obviously. Um, but let's think about judgment for a minute because this is big. When we are experiencing imposter syndrome, we are generally, the inner critic is usually really loud in our mind, meaning everything, nobody else sees it, right? But in our mind, we're hearing that critic. Are you kidding? Did you really just do that? You're such an idiot. Oh my God, look how fat you are. Oh my God, did you just take that drink again? You're so weak. You're so this, you're so that, right? The inner critic on and on and on and on. Whew. And there are other voices, right? But the inner critic is taking the stage and pushing everyone backstage. So they're small, they're meek, the coach, the best friend. Then we have, then we have, judgment from others so with and this wasn't the most painful well one of the most painful for me not the most painful people pleasing was but the one of the most painful was i was always worried about what other people thought i didn't mm. let other people know that this was all going on inside yeah yep. you know it's hidden i'm hiding it i'm doing yep. a really good job of that um what did he think what did she think you know and there are certain people like sometimes people really are being judgmental, right? Yeah. So in your mind, you're blowing that up. Oh, now what are they thinking of me? Oh, what, you know, and so what? But, so that's the second head, right? And the third one is how we judge other people because we're all doing it. So this is the hardest part. This is the radical self-honesty. Oh, am I being judgmental? Maybe I'm doing it too, yeah. you know? Yeah. Maybe I need to catch myself. Maybe I need to realize that that person's having their own pain. That person's having their 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 own struggle, right? That yeah. person is dealing with something. I need to give them grace and space. So grace, forgiveness, space, right? Like kind of that same idea of time heals all wounds. We need to give people a little bit of space to process, go through what they're going through through right yep. um so it starts with the inner critic it starts yeah. by taking that inner critic and i have a few exercises in the book and things i teach about this how do you silence your inner critic how do you actually do that right and so we want to understand it we i my favorite one is to give it a silly voice so i'll take it down and i'll put it in my finger and i'll make i'll let it say whatever it's saying so it'll say oh my god you're such an idiot are you so fat oh did you just eat that again and you have no willpower oh my god look at you right nobody's gonna like what you said and it just gives levity to it right so that's right. one of my favorite but i have a few of them and then this idea of the person judging us all right so you're judging me but so what right you're seeing this slice of my life this you know snapshot do you know my whole life do you really know what just happened before 
I have to just kind of let that go. Yeah. I have to give you the grace and space. Maybe you're being judgmental of me because you've got your own inner critic. Maybe you've got your own inner critic, right? So I've got to pay attention to that. Yeah. And then, and that takes a while, by the way, that's, to me, that's a hard one. And then, and they're all difficult. And the third yeah. one is, am I judging someone else? And that's where we have to catch ourselves. Yep. Because we don't want to think of ourselves as the judgy person, right? I I think that, you know, one of my, one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite quotes is, because we all walk around comparing and as we know the the comparison is the thief of joy but you know when i i like to say i i don't remember where i heard it but don't compare your movie in other words your entire life story to someone else's highlight reel where you just see a snapshot you were just talking about like you're just seeing their highlight reel you don't see their entire life, but yet you might compare and go, well, look at this beautiful house that Cheryl lives in, in San Diego. She's obviously doing way better than I am and blah, 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 blah. And we have that whole conversation that, that ensues in our head and, and it's just not necessary. You know, I was just going through this part of my book um, last night, actually. So there's compare despair, comparisonitis, yeah. And we usually think, what are we doing by comparing? But what if, what if comparison could be good? Let's face it, right? We're built to compare. We don't know light without dark. Right. We, right. We don't know what really happy feels like without sad. Yeah. We don't really know what the good, easy, peaceful times feel like if we've never had that stress or a little bit of push, right? right, right. Or a lot even. So comparison, let, let's see what I like to do is not say no comparison. Don't ever compare yourself. I like to say, what if comparison could be your best friend? What if you could look at everyone and go, I would say, oh my God, I must be doing something right. I attracted to Ken Walls to me and he invited me to be on his podcast. Oh my God, I must be doing something right. I'm in, I'm somehow I'm attracting these people around me that are doing something. They've been doing it longer or maybe they haven't been doing it as long as I have, but they're doing something differently. And I'm able to see that model. Yeah. Oh my God, that person, what if I could just be happy? for somebody else's success. Mm. Because when I'm not happy for somebody else's success, when I'm kind of secretly wishing them to fail or not do well, who is that hurting? Is that hurting them or is that nope. hurting me, right? Yeah. If you are genuinely happy for somebody else, I want you to notice how differently that feels in your body. When you go, oh my God, that is amazing. Did you just get your book published? I've always wanted to do that. That is amazing. Can you tell me more about that? Like, how did you get over some of the humps? Because I'm having, I'm, I find myself just like kind of freezing. Like I've gotten two chapters written versus, oh my God, you got your book published. I didn't. I hope it doesn't do well. Oh my God, I'm going to have to get on mine because mine's going to be so much better than yours. I'm like, what's going to feel better? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's like, right. Yeah. You know, it's not logical. It's not logical, but it takes, it takes intention. It takes consciousness because we become patterned. What? And I, I think we skipped past it. I maybe not. I may have missed it. What made you decide to get into the field that you're in? So specifically, okay. So getting into the healing arts, I just, you know, I was so for 30 years, you know, I was an entrepreneur. I had three different companies. I was a C-level, C-suite executive for a couple of billion dollar companies. One was not C-suite, but it was senior executive, kind of C-suite level yeah. uh, without the title. And so I've been around the block in business. I had the business stuff, but I was always interested in the healing arts. 
You know, I always studied NLP on my own. I uh, went to practitioners, energy, hypnotherapy. I was just fascinated with what was going on on the inside, the mindset piece of this. And I would work with my teams on this all the time. And so I did the deep dive. And then I thought, I'm going to really focus on manifestation. By the way, this is in my book in the introductory chapter. And so the book launches May 11th. But when someone pre-orders, you're going to get the intro, which is like a whole chapter and chapter one, also in the audio version. So in the PDF and audio, plus a few other bonuses. But so in the intro, I talk about this. I was doing workshops on manifestation. I was working with people one-on-one to help them manifest. And I thought, why do some people manifest so easily? Why does it just seem like they think about something and it's like, boom, it happens. Boom, right. Boom, right. And other people feel like they're doing all the things. They're reading all the books. They're saying all the mantras. And they're still getting more of what they have or opposite of what they want. What's going on? And I realized there were these disconnects, these mixed messages going on, you know, from the subconscious. Inside of that person. Inside. So there are these disconnects, these disconnects, these gaps. So I put my gap analyst hat on and I said, what are they? And then in the meantime, wait, 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 you can't, you can't go past that. You put your, say that again. I put my gap analyst hat on. (laughs) And you said, what are the disconnects? What are the the gaps? What are the disconnects? Why Mm. does this not work? Mm. I like to make things work. I'm not one of those people, like people will even say, well, you're always going to have imposter syndrome. You can't actually get past it. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm not. I'm not going to accept that. You (laughs) you can get past it. You can get past it. You know, I'm going to figure out how, which I have. So, so I did that. I did that work. And I worked on myself and then I was in clubhouse and I was doing these imposter syndrome rooms, which I did for more than a year now and had these people coming in and really talking. And I heard the voice. I heard the pain. It wasn't just these statistics, these numbers. I said, that's it. I said, the gaps are in imposter syndrome. We need to fix the foundation before we can start painting the walls. Right. This house is not going to stand. It's going to crumble without a good foundation. Mm. That, that, And all of these were under this umbrella of imposter syndrome, which is the psychological pattern where someone feels like they're not good enough in spite of their accomplishments, right? In spite of. So it's a pattern. It's patterned. There are things that are going on on the inside, but there are things for the So I, I call it a holistic approach, an inside-out and an outside in. We have to go do the deep dive, but we also have to figure out the patterns that are going on because things do come back, become pattern. Not just actions, but wow. beliefs, thoughts, our self-talk, right? Wow. It becomes patterned. And so we have to change those patterns and that takes a little bit of time. So both, wow. and everybody I found was just working from the outside in. They had these techniques, but they weren't doing the deep dive. Wow. Wow. What are some of the disconnects? Are there a lot or are there just a handful? You know, it's it's unique to each person, but right. a lot of the common ones are not good enough. Not good enough. I'm not good enough to do that. So so let's take that for an example. I'm not good enough. Yes. How does if if somebody has a deep-rooted sense of I'm not good enough? How do you, how does that person reverse that? How do they, how do they adopt the feeling, the sense of I am good enough? Yes, that's the process. It's not a simple one and done. It's not a silver bullet. See, and that's what people want. People want the quick fix. Now it's not, for me, it took decades. But I say it doesn't have to take decades. It doesn't have to take years. You know, I'm doing a 90-day program. That's nothing. To come out with this peace, this sense of, you know, I feel great. I love who I am. I love my accomplishments. I feel deserving. That's another one worthy. By the way, Ken, I want to say something here. A lot of people, and there I go through a number of myths, 
in the book, but one of the myths is that this is only something that people feel when they're beginners or they're starting something new or there's a big change. Oh, you know, when you start something new, you're going to always get the imposter syndrome. Yeah. And so that's, it's not entirely a myth, but you will feel some of these, I'm not good enough or am I good or am I good enough to do this? Am I as good as someone else? I'm going to compare myself. You will feel some of that in any new situation as you should. There's a competency staircase. Yeah. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that highly accomplished people, in fact, the vast majority of people experiencing imposter syndrome are accomplished people and highly accomplished people. Think Sheryl Sandberg, you know, Tina Fey, Steve Martin, Albert Einstein. You know, the list goes on and on. Probably, I would say eight to nine out of 10 of the people around you and the people that are the most successful have this. They've just gotten better at hiding it. They've learned to feel the fear and do it anyway. So it doesn't keep you from being accomplished. Some people will say, just feel the fear and do it anyway, and you can get past imposter syndrome. Or if you just do it long enough, you'll get your competency muscle. You'll get become more confident because you've done it more and you're more competent. But that's not it either. Right. You see, you see, it's this disconnect. So highly accomplished people will tell me and they do often, often, often. um, It doesn't matter how accomplished I am. Every time I go to, like Maya Angelou said, every time I go to write another book, I think, oh, they're going to figure out that I was a fraud, Yeah, you know, or, you know, it's just, they still feel, they just feel like they're, yeah, they're, they're a fake. They're going to be found out. They're going to be exposed. Yeah. I can't believe we've already, we've been on here 56 minutes already. That's crazy. This flew by. Let me ask you this. And I ask every guest this first, I'm going to put up on the screen. What's the best website? Cheryl and Yeah. Cheryl and And there's a quiz for anybody that would like to know if they're experiencing imposter syndrome and to what degree it gives you a score. So that's Cheryl and forward slash quiz. Um, You can just put, I think it's on my homepage too. And you can always just put forward slash quiz on there if you want. Okay. So, so let me ask you this question now, let me preface it with this the number one answer to the question I'm getting ready to ask you is fear. And I'm going to set the bar higher for you. I think you can do better than fear. (laughs) But the question is, you're like, oh, thanks for setting me up for that. The question is, in your opinion, professional opinion, what do you think holds people back in life from experiencing two things. Number one, real financial success. And number two, real freedom, happiness. And, and, and I say this every time I think they're related. I've been, I've been broken homeless and I've been wealthy and broken homeless sucks and you don't feel good about anything in life. (laughs) At least I didn't. Um, so what do you think's holding people back? I wish I could say it was one thing. I have to say it's mindset. Mm. I think our mind is set like a thermometer is set, right? Mm. Um, we, we, we have a set points. We have set points for everything. And we accept set points as this is who I am. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. Or I'm not deserving. Um, we take that on. It's like an emotional identity and we allow it to become our mental construct. And so we need to reset that mind, reset it to say, I am worthy. I'm deserving. Abundance mm-hmm. flows through me, not just from the outside in, not just with the mantras. Those are good. But from the inside out, we need to reset it internally, the internal thermostat. So I think it's mindset. I agree. 1000%. I agree. During the, the, the pandemic, um, I know 
for a fact, I know that suicide rates went up worldwide. I mean, skyrocketed for, for people who are, maybe they're not contemplating that, but they're, they're, they feel like they've tried everything maybe in their business or their life to, to, to get it to the next level. And they just, they're hanging on by a thread. They don't, they don't know what the next step is. And, and quite frankly, I've been there way more than once. Um, what do you say to somebody like that? That's just barely hanging on. They don't know which way to go. If they called you and said, I don't know what to do. What, what do you say to them to help them get to the next moment? Yeah. So first and foremost, everything in our imagination, everything in your mind is more real than reality. It doesn't matter what is going on outside of you. What's going on inside your mind is more real. That's your reality. So somebody can have everything beautiful around them and have this inner turmoil and feel like you are feeling like they're hanging on by a thread when the reality says otherwise. If the outside is you're hanging on by reality and you can put in your mind this thought, I'm going to give you a couple of them that are simple. One is every storm, every storm runs out of water. Mm. Every storm runs out of water. Eventually the sun does come out. Sometimes that storm can seem like it's going on and on. It's tumultuous. Now, In that storm, I want you to imagine a hurricane. And I want you to remember that there's always an eye of the hurricane. There's a peaceful center in every storm, in every hurricane. So I want you to just put yourself first and foremost in the eye of the storm. Notice the turmoil around you. It's outside of you. You're safe you are safe and tell yourself that remind yourself take a deep breath this will pass every storm runs out of rain you are in the eye of the storm you are okay you are safe it will work out it will be okay if you tell yourself a good story you will believe it and you need to Every time the bad story comes in, you need to push it aside. Push it to the outside of the storm and let it go around and around. But inside, keep your story. This is sacred ground for you. You need to stay here. You will be okay. Next, find and breathe while you're doing this. Breathe deeply. Breathe, breathe deep into, like almost like you're pulling that breath into the base of your spine. Fill up your lungs because this will calm your nervous system. If you breathe shallow it will heighten your sense of despair. If you breathe deep, it will start to calm you. And then find somebody, anybody, and you don't have to know them. Somebody like Ken, who was hanging by a thread, who was where you were and has turned it around. And remember, that's you. That's you. You're just on the other side of it. And you're going to get, and I want you to remember how this felt. Because one day you're going to be on the other side of this and you're going to help someone else. Just yeah. like Ken is, you're going to get to be that person like Ken that is helping someone else because you understand them. Amen. Amen and amen. And the whole church said, amen. <laughs> Cheryl, you are, you're amazing. I, I want everybody watching to go to CherylAnjanette.com and you can go to the quiz afterwards, but They can pre-order from your website, right? Yeah. And please do me a favor. Send me an email at hello. And by the way, if you take the quiz, I'll have your email, but hello at Cheryl and Jeanette. So I can send you the bonuses. If you pre-order, I'd love that. Thank you so much. Um, And you'll be the first to get it. Yes. And I, Hey, I am grateful to get a, what's, what is this? The pre, pre release. Yes. I'm, just, I'm grateful. Thank you for sending That's an this to author, me. an author copy. An author copy. Yeah. Wow. And for anybody that takes the quiz, I'm going to be doing some giveaways of some author copies as well. There's some going to be some fun things we're going to be doing over the next three weeks. 
this officially launches in three weeks. So it's not too long before you get the book. Can I, can I show them the back cover? Yeah, of course. Look at this, you guys. Let go of self-doubt, say goodbye to self-sabotage, heal comparison-itis. You are good enough. <laughs> this, is, this is awesome. Cheryl, you're amazing. I'm so grateful to call you a friend. And we're, we're going to be doing some other things together. I'm, I'm just so excited. My wife is on here watching as well. I'm so grateful she was able to watch this morning too. I cannot wait to meet you, Jill. <laughs> Find out who the woman is that can tolerate yes. my energy. <laughs> Lucky girl. Oh, it's so nice of you. So, so Cheryl, thank you. And everybody watching, make sure that you go over and, and follow Cheryl you're on Clubhouse quite often, I believe, yes. right? Yeah. Yes, I am. So follow Cheryl on Clubhouse and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and and all of the all of the social media platforms and go to her website and take the quiz, CherylAnjanette.com forward slash quiz and take the quiz. Cheryl, thank you for coming on today and sharing your beautiful heart and energy and story. And oh, you're incredible. But Ken, thank I'm you. so honored, so honored to be here with you. Thank you. I'm 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 I think I'm more honored. So <laughs> we can argue about it later. I'm yeah, sure. yeah. So, all right. Well, everybody have a wonderful day. Make sure you follow Cheryl, especially on Clubhouse, because you do deliver a lot of value on Clubhouse. That's what attracted me to you is your thank you. Just your energy is amazing. So, thank, so, you. thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you. Well, I appreciate you. We'll see you guys later. Have a great day. Bye bye.